Hey, I'm Mark. And I'm Eric. And together, we're the hosts of Lorehammer, a Warhammer 40k podcast. Warhammer 40,000 is set in the grim darkness of the 41st millennium, and our show explores the setting and details of this massive science fantasy universe. Our topics range from galaxy-spanning conquests to individual planetary cultures, from vile alien races to the zealous humans that fight them. While we're covering these topics, we make sure to keep it light and fresh so we don't go crazy from all the grim darkness of the far future. There is a colossal amount of lore to share, but with our rotating list of over 30 guests, we make sure there's always a fresh take, perspective, or argument to be had. So if you like vast fictional universes where the rabbit holes go on forever, or creating your own stories alongside countless others, we think Lorehammer is the perfect place for you. So if you're ready to laugh, learn, and maybe even love again, join us for bi-weekly episode releases. Welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. I have something very special for you this week. I'm currently working on a lot of things behind the scenes. In the coming months, I will have a lot of announcements to make that I think you're all going to be so happy about. Some things will be new, and some things will be going back to the way they were before. I can't say much about any of it yet. But today is a teeny tiny teaser into a project that will be coming out around Halloween. I stumbled upon this incredible article that was featured in the October 1877 issue of The Atlantic. Yes, The Atlantic is that old. As many of you probably know, the Victorian era is when spiritualism as we know it today really started coming into fashion. This article talks about this new ghost craze and offers some true stories the author has collected from what they claim were verifiable sources. I had to record this in two parts. I record at night because of the noise levels on my street, and after I got past the baby story, no spoilers, um, I took what I was, what I thought was going to be a short break refill my water, turn my AC back on for a second, all that good stuff. But I was alone in my apartment and it was the middle of the night and this article got me so spooked that I had to stop and continue the next day. Seriously, you know when you scare yourself and there's just no going back. It is like I can't look too far down my hallway. I couldn't look at any mirrors. It was, uh, I just really got myself really far up there with the scares. And I hope this does the same for you because these are really creepy. I mean, we all love a good creepy Victorian ghost and these are from the Victorians themselves. Some older because some of them sound like, like especially the first one sounds like it's from an older gentleman. And that person says this story, his story was from like a long time ago. And so who knows how old it is. I also looked for more from this author, um, but they only went by their initials and I couldn't pin down a single other thing they had definitively written, which is a shame because they have a beautiful way with words. I understand why they might go by their initials though. This was kind of a new fangled, crazy ideology, I guess. Um, 
but this is an absolute gem of an article for any paranormal enthusiast. I will link it in the show notes so you can read it yourself as well. I hope you enjoy Old Fashioned Ghost Stories by H.B.K. In that far-off time, which I have long been accustomed to designate as my young days, I heard very little about ghosts. At that period, they were decidedly unfashionable, were rarely mentioned in polite circles, and the slightest credence in them was considered a debasing superstition fit only for the vulgar. Now, however, that the subject of spiritual appearances is constantly brought forward in mixed society and argued pro and con with more or less warmth, it is easy to perceive that a strong current of belief underlies all the skepticism manifested by strong-minded unbelievers. The Banshee of Ireland, the Fetch of Scotland, the Doppelganger of Germany, are but the expressions of deep-rooted national belief. And though, undoubtedly, spurious ghosts, unreal visitations, and mock warnings have imposed from time to time on the credulity of the public, yet a vast number of well-authenticated facts, in many cases from personal experience or from the lips of people of unimpeachable veracity, may enable us to say with the poet, There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Dr. Bushnell, in his grand work, Nature and the Supernatural, lays it down as an axiom that there is nothing beyond the reach of almighty direction, and that those deviations from the received laws of nature, which we are too apt presumptuously to pronounce impossibilities, are simply matters which our finite comprehension cannot fathom. It is interesting to notice how generally unimpressionable children and very young people are with regard to supernatural appearances, and though in this very paper I mention a few anecdotes of a contrary tendency, yet I have every reason to think they are exceptions to a general rule, and not evidences against it. I have myself known children of susceptible and nervous temperament who could be worked up into paroxysms of terror by nursery tales of thieves and robbers, listen quite unconcernedly to the most thrilling stories of ghostly appearances. Who has not read with some amusement of the children at Epworth Rectory, whose marvelous coolness under the visitations of the family ghost is recorded by Abel Stevens in his life of Wesley. These children, when interrupted in their play by the noisy rappings of the ghost, would simply say to each other, oh, it is only the ghost, and continue their game. It is mostly in mature years that our restless yearnings to discover the mysteries of the unseen world, or at least to account for the few glimpses we may have had of it, become more intense, especially when the angel of death has torn from our arms some cherished member of our little circle. We may go hand in hand with our loved ones to the very brink of the dark river, but there, 
we must leave them. And oh, how we struggle and agonize and passionately pray, alas, how fruitlessly, but for one glimpse beyond the veil, for but one brief message of comfort or of warning from the shadowy land in which our cherished ones have vanished. It is strange, too, that while the veil which parts the visible from the invisible world is thick and impervious to the more delicate, fragile, and susceptible children of clay, it seems at times perfectly diaphanous to some of the hard-working, practical children of toil whose spiritual sensibilities might be supposed to be of the dullest and most obtuse kind. The events which I record in this paper have taken place either in my own family or in the families of intimate friends, or are from the narration of persons of strict veracity. I begin with one told me very lately by a pious and useful minister of the Church of England. I give this anecdote of his boyish days as much as possible in his own words. I was brought up by my grandfather and grandmother, who resided in the old family mansion on the banks of Derwent in Derbyshire. This venerable place, which had belonged to our family from the time of the Norman conquest, had a wide reputation for being haunted. And indeed, the strange noises which were heard and the strange tricks which were played, for which nothing rational could account, made the belief of general acceptance. From generation to generation, no death occurred in our family without some supernatural warning being given, and in what I am about to tell you, I was the person visited for this purpose. When I was about seventeen years of age, it was rather suddenly agreed that I should go with Granny, as I called her, to pay a visit of a few days to my parents, who lived in the suburbs of Manchester. During the past summer, my youngest sister Lizzie, with whom I had been very little acquainted before, had paid us a visit at the time of haymaking, and I remember thinking that she was the most beautiful child I had ever seen, always in white, with lovely auburn hair floating in long curls over her shoulders and playfully darting in and out among the haymakers. She appeared to me something angelic, and when her visit was ended, I quite grieved over her departure. I was therefore much pleased when Granny asked me to accompany her to Manchester, as I should see my dear little sister again. A year before, we had lost an aunt to whom we were deeply attached, and her bereaved husband was at the present time inhabiting one wing of our old family mansion. It was the 19th of December, 1850, that after carefully packing my box for the journey and laying quite at the bottom of the box, as it stood in a corner of my room, some articles of black crepe which I had worn at my aunt's funeral. I went to pay a farewell visit to my uncle in his part of the house. After I had sat with him some time, the hall clock struck four, and just at that moment, I felt a deadly chill and shivering all over me, exactly as if 
I had been suddenly plunged into cold water. I became deadly pale, and my uncle, in an alarmed tone, asked what was the matter with me. I said I did not know, but that I had never felt such a strange sensation before. My uncle imagined I must have taken cold, and recommended my going early to bed, as I was to travel the following day. Having quite recovered from my unpleasant feelings, I spent the evening as usual and retired to bed at the accustomed time. Now, my bedroom was at the end of a long, narrow corridor, and exactly opposite the door by which I entered was the door of a room said to be haunted, which was always kept closed, and which no servant in the house could be persuaded to enter. Indeed, they very unanimously avoided going into the corridor itself after dark, though it opened into many bedrooms beside my own. I had two or three times, while a boy, been in the haunted room with my grandfather. I saw nothing remarkable about it, but a good deal of moldy, old-fashioned furniture, and an immense, funereal-looking bed at one end, with hangings which had once been splendid, but were now dropping to pieces from age and neglect. The bed in my room stood exactly facing the door by which I entered, and the door of the haunted room across the passage. Another door on the same side of the room was blocked up by my box, which stood against it. I cannot distinctly remember whether or not, in entering for the night, I closed my bedroom door, but think it almost certain that I did so, for it was December and the weather very cold. I went to bed full of my tomorrow's journey, and not giving a single thought to either ghosts or haunted rooms, went fast to sleep. How long I slept, I cannot guess, but I found myself sitting up in bed intently watching the door of my room, which was wide open, and the door of the haunted room, which was also open, and which I could see distinctly across the corridor as the moonlight fell upon it. From this room came a figure, which I watched across the passage, and which on approaching my bed, I at once recognized as the aunt I had lost the year before. Dressed in the same clothes I had last seen her in. She had a most fond and tender expression on her face, but it changed into an angry frown when, stretching over the side of the bed, I tried to embrace her, exclaiming, Oh, dear aunt, is that you? I felt that I clasped the empty air, the figure vanishing in an instant from my sight. I thought I had been dreaming, and lay down again to wake up a short time afterwards and see again the figure of my aunt, but now differently dressed, advancing from the haunted room into mine, this time not coming to the bed, but going to the box I had packed and placed in the corner ready for the next day. This she appeared to rummage over, displacing the contents and tossing the things back again. I watched her with the greatest astonishment and saw her go slowly out of my room into the door of the haunted room. I don't know whether I slept again or not, 
But a third time, I was sitting up in bed. A third time, my aunt came in, this time close up to the bed, in long, flowing white clothes, a dress in which I had never seen her. I almost gasped out, Dear aunt, why do you come? To which she replied very clearly and distinctly, but with something of effort, I come to make an important communication, but it is all comprised in these words. Poor Lizzie, but don't grieve. Lizzie is quite happy. As she finished these words, I started from the bed with outstretched arms, but she had vanished, and I fell heavily to the floor where she had stood. I suppose that after getting back to bed, I slept till morning, but as soon as I saw my grandmother, I told her all the circumstances and made her look at my box, which was in the greatest disorder, and all the articles of mourning which I had placed at the bottom of the box, I found at the top. My grandmother looked grave, but said nothing. I still persisted in thinking it but a curious dream, and we started on our journey that very morning. I was quite in my usual spirits when we arrived at the last railway station. From here, we still had a long walk to where my parents lived, And, as we were not expected, I pleased myself by thinking how surprised they would all be. We arrived, and just as I laid my hand on the latch of the garden gate to open it for Granny, I felt exactly the same deathly chill and shivering which had come over me while sitting with my uncle the evening before. When I had recovered, and we were going up the long gravel walk, I said to my grandmother, How strange the house looks, Granny. All the windows are draped with white, and I never remember my mother's room having white curtains before. Granny made no answer, and as we knocked at the door, my mother opened it, led us into the hall, and received us most affectionately, but spoke in a hushed, subdued tone which frightened me. Her first words were, How glad I am you are come. We looked for you some hours ago. How can that be, we replied, when we meant to surprise you and did not write that we were coming. But you did not, she said. Get my two letters? The one in which I wrote of dear Lizzie's dangerous illness from scarlet fever a week ago, and one to tell you of her death at four o'clock yesterday, which last ought to have reached you before you started this morning. This was a dreadful blow to us, for, as we told my mother, we had received neither letter. When we were a little recovered from the shock, my mother told us that, the day before, Lizzie knew she was dying, and said she felt quite happy. She took leave of all the family then at home, and referring to me, said, I should have liked to say goodbye to dear Tom. Poor Tom. 
give my love to Tom. As she said these last words, she fell back and passed away. Just at that moment, the clock struck four. She died then, exactly at the time when I felt the deathly chill while sitting with my uncle. After my grandfather's death, I was placed till I was five and twenty in business with a master who proved to be a professed atheist, finding me to be an intelligent lad and more than usually well-grounded in the scriptures he made it his daily business, by specious argument and covert ridicule, to undermine my Christian belief, and often flattered himself that he was on the point of succeeding. He certainly would have done so, but for my remembrance of my aunt's appearance in my bedroom at the time of Lizzie's death. Whenever I had time for reflection and thought of that, I felt assured that there was not only a state of being after death, but a directing power by whose agency even a disembodied spirit could return to the scene of its earthly pilgrimage. Our Protestant minister in France told us of a curious occurrence in his father's family before he was born, which related to his eldest brother, then a baby in arms. His father, Captain S., having come into the inheritance of a large estate, was having some alterations and additions made to the house, and, pending the completion of these, engaged a house in the immediate neighborhood. When his family arrived, a spacious, airy room on the second floor was given up to the nurse and the baby, then only seven months old. The very day of their taking possession, the nurse found that her little charge usually so quiet and good-tempered, began, when the evening drew on, to scream most violently, and more particularly when, in walking up and down to quiet him, she passed before a large, empty closet at one side of the room. Indeed, it seemed to her most unaccountable that the baby appeared by an irresistible fascination always to turn his head towards the closet and to scream so that she feared he would go into convulsions. This continued for some days, only towards the evenings and always at the same time. The nurse told her mistress, and Mrs. S. thought it advisable to remove the nursery to a room on the floor with herself when it was found that the child's excitement entirely ceased and it became as placid as usual. After Captain S. removed to his own house, the one he had hired was pulled down by the landlord, and under the floor of the empty closet was found the skeleton of a person who had evidently been murdered and hidden away there long years before. There were no rumors in the place implicating any of the recent owners of the house in question, but a very old woman remembered to have heard in her youth of the mysterious disappearance of a young girl from the family of a visitor to the place, who was never heard of again. It is to be supposed that the unconscious baby was in some mysterious manner made aware of the ghostly secret hidden under the cupboard floor.
A young English lady, nearly connected with our family, married while visiting in Germany, a gentleman of rank and fortune, with whose mother, who lived at a distance of about 40 miles away, she became a great favorite. At the birth of her first baby, she was much distressed that her kind mother-in-law, the Frau von B., was not present, nor did her husband venture to tell her that illness, not, however, supposed to be dangerous, was the cause. All went well in the sick room, and five days afterwards, Madame B., her baby boy beside her, was sleeping soundly with her curtains drawn, just as darkness had settled down at the close of a winter's day. Contrary to her usual custom, the nurse, seeing the lady so fast asleep, had left the room to get something necessary for the night. Madame B. awoke on feeling the pressure of an icy cold hand on her arm, and, looking up hastily, saw by the light of the lamp her mother-in-law hanging over her and the baby with a very sad expression on her face, which was ashy pale. Raising herself in the bed, the young mother exclaimed, Oh, dearest mother, when did you come? I am so glad. The mother-in-law sighed deeply and replied, I am only come, dear Alice, to say farewell forever. You will never see me more on earth. She instantly vanished out of sight, and the nurse, returning, found her lady in a state of great excitement and alarm, calling for her mother-in-law and saying that she must be in the house, having just left her bedside. The poor lady was ill for many days, and it was long before she was told that her husband's mother had died at her own castle, 40 miles away, at the very moment when she stood beside her. A sister of this young Madame B was staying at Brighton with the family of a young friend in a deplorable state of health, but who was gradually getting better under the care of a doctor. Clever and zealous, who visited her daily and took the greatest interest in her case. He was a tall, slender man with long, thin fingers, most remarkably white and a countenance which seemed to bear the impress of all the woes and troubles of his numerous patients. So deep was the sympathy he felt for those who suffered. One day, there was much sorrow in the family. The kind physician on whose visits they so much depended died suddenly. None of them dared to tell the invalid, and for a few days nothing was said. But the family noticed that poor Minnie S looked very pensive and grave. At length, her mother thought it best to tell her when she quietly replied, I have known it from the first. Lie came and told me himself and comes to see me every night. A few nights after this, for some reason or another, the invalid went to sleep in a different room and the young friend staying on a visit took her place in the vacated bed. Towards midnight, the family, who kept late hours, retired for the night, and Georgie D., 
took possession of her friend's bed, quite ignorant of the doctor's nightly visits. In about an hour, loud shrieks were heard from the room, and the young girl was found on the side of the bed, pale and trembling, almost convulsed with terror. She said that having undressed and gone to bed, first shutting and locking the bedroom door, she went fast asleep, leaving her curtains undrawn and the lamp on the dressing table alight. She was awakened by a rustling noise beside her bed, and starting up, saw the doctor, dressed just as he was in life, standing there. He then sat down on the side of the bed and laid his long, pale hand on her arm. But the moment he saw that the occupant of the bed was changed, he got up and vanished from her sight before reaching the door. Strange to say, that very instant he went to the room where Minnie S. was sleeping and held his customary conversation with her, quite unseen and unheard by Annie D., a younger sister of the one whom he had just been so plainly visible. After a time, his visits ceased. At the close of the Burmese War, Lieutenant K., a young officer who had been severely wounded in one of the actions and subsequently attacked by fever, was sent home on sick certificate some months before the return of his regiment, whose term of service in India had nearly expired. He left many friends behind him, but none from whom he more deeply regretted to part than Mr. P., the British collector at Madura, with whom he had been for years on terms of most familiar intimacy. The very first night of his landing in England, after an absence which dated from boyhood, he lay long awake in his bed at the hotel where he had taken up his quarters. He felt very restless and thought over all he had gone through in India and the friends he had left to see probably no more. Among these, he thought of his friend P. It was past midnight and he was still meditating when he heard someone in the room though he had locked the door before undressing. He looked to the side from which the sound came and distinctly saw his friend P, not far from the bed, gazing at him very mournfully. Astonished beyond measure, he prepared to step out of bed, exclaiming, Why, P, whatever brings you here? His friend waved his hand as if to keep him off, shook his head sadly, and, gliding towards the door, suddenly disappeared. Kay remained awake nearly the whole night, quite unable to account for what had happened. In due course of time, the mails from India brought word that P had died of cholera at Madura after a few hours' illness on the very night in which he appeared to Lieutenant Kay. Miss Mary E. resided with her father and kept house for him in his beautiful Kentish villa. The grounds were very extensive, but Mr. E.'s favorite spot was a group of large trees within sight of the drawing room windows. He had a garden soat and a small table placed, 
and was in the habit of smoking his afternoon cigar and also reading here every day. Miss E. was an accomplished horsewoman and usually accompanied her father in his daily rides. One day, she refused to go, having a bad headache, but followed Mr. E. to the foot of the stairs and begged him to return in time for tea, as he had promised to escort her to a dancing party in their neighborhood. To this, he agreed, and Miss E. from the window watched him mount his horse and ride off. She lay down for a time, but at last, feeling restless, got up, and taking a book, sat down to read. At the usual time, the maid came to say that tea was ready. But, said Miss E, Papa has not come home, Mary, and I would rather wait. Oh, yes, miss, said the servant. My master has been home for about half an hour and is smoking in the garden. Miss E, looked from the window and saw her father in his accustomed place under the trees. She was going downstairs to join him and to bring him in to tea, when she paused, hearing a confused murmur of voices in the hall below. A deadly fear, for which she could not account, seized her. But recovering, she went down to find a group of men from the village, many of whose faces she knew by sight, bringing in on a shutter the dead body of her father. His horse had shied, it was supposed, at a heap of stones at the side of the road, and his head coming in contact with the stones, death must have been instantaneous. At the time that Mr. E was distinctly seen by the servant and his daughter, he was lying a bleeding corpse. Some time after my dear mother's death, I was sitting with my father, Colonel D, in his dressing room, and we were mutually deploring our dreadful misfortune and going over, as we were prone to do, many of the circumstances attending her last illness. I remarked to him, among other things, that her illness was, in the beginning, so slight that I should not have felt the least fear as to the result had I not been extremely discouraged by the sadness and preoccupation of mind manifested by himself at the time. My father, after some hesitation, related to me the occurrence which had occasioned his unwanted depression of spirits, which I can truly say I listened to in dumb astonishment. So unlikely a person did he appear to have experienced anything of the sort. He was sitting one evening, after dinner with my mother, conversing on various subjects. The wine and dessert having been placed on the table, they drew their chairs up to each corner of a blazing fire, the evenings being chilly, though it was only the early autumn. After a time, my mother appeared to be dozing in her chair, and my father drew out his pocketbook to make note of some visit he had to pay the next day. He found, however, that the pencil case he always carried in his pocket, and much valued as the gift of an old friend, was not there, and, concluding that he had left it on his dressing table before dinner, quietly left the room to fetch it. The staircase went up from the hall, and at the first landing, branched off into two smaller staircases. 
the one to the left leading to my mother's apartments, a bedroom and dressing room fronting the lawn with a wide landing place and window between the two rooms, the one to the right through an arched doorway into a long corridor with bedrooms on each side and a back staircase at the end. My father's dressing room was in the middle of the corridor. Having found his pencil case, he was coming out of the arched doorway before mentioned when he saw my mother before him on the small flight of stairs leading to her own rooms. She turned into her dressing room and my father, much surprised to see her, followed to give her his arm in coming down again as she was rather infirm. What was his astonishment on entering the room to find no one there? He could hardly believe the evidence of his senses, and when on returning to the dining room, he found my mother in her chair by the fire, exactly as he had left her. He knew not what to think. When she roused up before tea, he asked whether she had left the room since dinner, to which she answered, not for a moment. When my father was on his deathbed, he was for some time delirious, but on the last morning, a few hours before death, he was perfectly lucid and said to me, I shall soon leave you, my child. Your dear mother has come to fetch me. Then, seeing doubtless my look of awed astonishment, he added, Yes, my dear wife has lain by my side all night. I had never left his bedside, but had neither seen nor heard anything unusual, except that during the night he seemed at intervals to be talking fondly to someone near him. Thanks for listening. And I just want to say thank you so much for all of the support I've received lately. Um, it means so much to me. Like I said in the beginning, the show is, <laughs> is going through a very large transition period at the moment. I can't say a lot about it yet. Um, in fact, I may not be able to say a lot about it until uh, maybe the end of September. So right in time for Halloween season. Uh, but just know that good things are coming. Uh, I, I, like I said, it, I think you're all going to be very happy with the changes that are happening. Don't worry. The show itself is not going to change. It's still going to be the same format, uh, same voice. Um, I'm not going to change into like scare you awake and just put out episodes of me screaming for an hour straight. I promise. <laughs> Um, and remember, I wanted to put this out too. I haven't for a while. So the, uh, email address for submitting is scary to sleep at gmail.com. Send in your submissions. It's great. Like I, I can't wait to read them. I also wanted to put out because I've had some confusion and I had a few people and I feel so bad. Send me things like letters and things, which feel free to write me a letter. I love receiving your letters. I've gotten some very very personal and meaningful letters from my P.O. box, but I have had a few people say that they've sent them to the old um, P.O. box address that I used to say on the show, and remember that one got shut down for dumb reasons, um, but I have the new one. I will read it to you again, 
and I'll put it in the show notes. It's also available on my website, scarytosleep.com. So, um, yeah, you can send any and all letters or care packages or whatever you'd like to send me to Shelby Scott, P.O. Box 2554, North Hills, California, 91393-2554. Again, I'll put that in the show notes and there's a link, there's, it's available on the website if you go to scareyoutosleep.com. Um, Remember to follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. The Facebook group is growing. Twitter, all of it's growing, really. Um, so thank you so much for that. Um, so yeah, there's a Discord channel. Um, there's a link to that in the show notes as well. There's a link to all the socials in the show notes. Drop me a line, say hi, email me, write me a letter. Uh, yeah, all that good stuff. Uh, so thank you so much again for all the support. I got a lot of news this week and I've been agonizing a lot over these changes because I wasn't sure about what the outcomes were going to be and I've been very stressed out Uh, I don't know if you could tell (laughs) but I feel a lot more at peace now and it's honestly all because of all of you uh this I wouldn't be having to make these big hard, scary decisions without all of you. And I know that may sound, I think I worded that in a bad way, but I mean it in a very good way. Um, so yeah, thank you just so much. Um, I, oh, go listen to Lorehammer, Lorehammer. They're my buddies. Um, go listen to them. I also have a new podcast that I'm going to be promoting soon. I'll just do a prelim promotion called film history the history of film it's not my podcast i think i just worded it like that was my podcast no it's actually my husband's podcast with two of his friends i was guest on an episode that hasn't come out yet but check out like look out for that be on the lookout i will let you know when that happens they haven't sent me a trailer yet they're working on that it's it's literally a very brand new show one episode is out um so go check that out if you'd like uh or you can wait for a few more episodes to come out because their first few episodes is a multi-part series on James Cagney. Um, and it's very fascinating. Um, it's not like my show. They are not going to be whispering to you (laughs) very much the opposite. Just, just throwing that out there. (laughs) Um, I think that's all for now. Thank you so much for listening. I've been thanking you a lot tonight, but you deserve it. You Pat, can you hear me? Pat yourself on the back. I'm patting myself, pat yourself on the back because you make my life so much happier than it was more than three years ago. It was the third anniversary recently. And I was just like a lost soul in this world. And you've all made life worth living. All right. I'm going to let you go. I'm just being sappy and I can't even tell you anything really yet. So it's like, Oh my God, lady, shut up. You can't even tell us what's happening. You're just being just, you know, saccharin and syrupy and I hate it. Go back to being scary. Um, okay. Go get some sleep. Drink your water and sweet dreams.